Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is one of our first shows for December of 2017. It's time to relax and kick back and think a little bit about what we've done all year. And for many of you, it's time to drink and forget everything that you've done this year. And in order to help along with that forgetting, we've got an excellent show for you today. It's We have a special guest, one of the few guests we've ever had on the show. And we're going to talk about something very, very interesting. Before I do that, let me bring in our own little Santa's elf, one Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? I forget, Len. It's been so long. <laughs> exactly. Some drink to remember, some drink to forget, right? There we go. And also on the show today, we have Gregory Camp. He's our special guest. Dr. Gregory Camp is a lecturer at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. Welcome, Gregory. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. And the reason why we have Gregory on the show is this. As you guys know, periodically I go through Google Scholar looking for academics who have done interesting research on the subject of Disney theme parks. And I came across an article that Gregory had written in the February 2017 edition of the Journal of the Society for American Music. And it's titled Mickey Mouse Music, Shaping Experience Musically at Walt Disney World. Gregory, why don't you introduce the premise of the article for us? Sure. So this article is is looking at how Disney's Imagineers use music to create the guests' experience in their theme parks, especially Disney World, but I, I look at a little bit at all of them. And thinking about how what they do musically has a lot in common with what films do in their music and just how the music is used to enhance the experience, to make the guests feel like they're part of a narrative that's going on, to make them feel like they're in charge of what's happening to them. That's great because we, we all know that music is one of the core components of the theme park experience. It's up there with rides and food. That's right. In terms of the importance of creating an environment. So I thought it'd be fun if we sort of walked through the Magic Kingdom and you gave us an idea of what the Imagineers were trying to do with the kinds of music they're playing in each area. How does that sound? That sounds great. All right. So let's start at the Magic Kingdom. Let's pretend that we're at the turnstiles. We're facing the train station. We're about to go through the tunnels. What's what's Disney playing here in terms of background music? And what are they trying to do? Well, you're going to hear a lot of really upbeat music. Definitely all in major keys, not minor keys. So happy music, fast music rather than slow music. So this is all making us get ready to have our exciting day in the park. All right, Aaron's going to insert some Magic Kingdom background music here. Go ahead, Aaron. If you listen carefully to even the orchestration, you'll hear that there's a lot of sort of shiny percussion stuff, bells, mm -hmm. lots of violins, higher instruments, a little bit of higher brass. You're not going to hear too many like Wagnerian trombones and tubas. <laughs> that, would be, that would create a very different idea of a sort of a portentous idea of what might be happening in the park. <laughs> Ride of the Valkyries entering the park would be would be super interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, it would fit for how people run to get to the ride they want to go on. <laughs> maybe maybe that's what they should play. Yeah, maybe yeah. Get them in faster. All right. Right now, uh, we're going to have Aaron, our producer, enter in some examples of major and minor key music. Here we go. On a guitar, we're going to play an E major. And now, this is an E minor. And to give you one more comparison, this is an A major. 
and this is an A minor. All right, so we walked through the entrance and we're on Main Street, USA. Obviously, one of the most American parts of the park. What's Disney trying to do here? So in Main Street overall, they're trying to recreate a sense of, of the American past and make us feel nostalgic for the old small town that we probably didn't grow up in, but that we might like to imagine ourselves having grown up in. So the music is going to help evoke that by using songs either from the period, from the early 20th century, or that somehow evoke that period through other things that we might know. So, for example, you might hear in the good old summertime or Daisy, you know, popular songs of that time. Right. But you also hear things like the trolley song from Mimi in St. Louis, which is written in the 40s, but it's a movie that was set in the early 1900s. So if people know that film, they won't really think of it as 40s. They'll think of it as 1900s. Okay. As an example of a period of piece, we've got a Paragon Ragtime Orchestra playing the Junkman Rag. Here we go. I've heard things from The Music Man being played, which is set in the same period. Sometimes you'll hear arrangements of more recent Disney tunes right. sort of set in, in a turn-of-the-century style arrangement. I've heard some of the music from Up, you know, the, the main theme from Up, the Pixar movie, that kind of invokes a similar style of music of that time, that sense of nostalgia. They do a couple of things from, I think, Hello, Dolly. Yeah, that too. Yeah, Again, a, a show that's set in the same period. Right. And again, during the morning, it's generally fairly peppy music that they're playing as well, right? That's right. And they do a couple of live performances with the entertainers. Yeah, you've got the barbershop quartet, you've got the brass band, you've got the performers on the trolley who ride through a couple times every day. Okay, let's do one more Main Street sample. It's Maple Leaf Rag. So all, all of this is contributing to an imaginary turn-of-the-century style of soundscape to match the visual that we see. All right, so Gregory, then let's uh, make a left and go into Adventureland. So in our transition from Main Street USA to Adventureland, you tend to go from peppy brass bands to drums, right? That's right. And the way they stage these transitions is kind of interesting because if you stand in the right place, you can get both streams of music going at the same time. It's almost like they're making you see the seam just a little bit. And I think that has the effect of almost showing you how much work they're putting into it. Yeah, so if you stand right before the bridge, like to where you can see the Crystal Palace, yeah. right before the bridge to Adventureland, you can sort of turn one way and have one ear listening to the stuff from Main Street and have the other ear listening to Adventureland. And you see some of that as intentional? Well, I don't know if they thought about it, but it has an effect of showing the craft of what they do. So it's it's demonstrating that, yes, they are thinking about music because here's a space where you can hear very clearly that they're doing it because it's not quite 100% real to the place okay. that you're standing in. And let's go into Adventureland. What sort of music are they playing in Adventureland? Oh, well, like you said, there are a lot of drums. Okay. And there are also, if I remember correctly, there, there are some drums that people can actually play. So the guests can add to the, the soundscape themselves. Speaking of Adventureland drums, let's listen to a track here real quick.
You've also got music from the films or shows that the rides are based on. Oh, right. So Swiss Family Treehouse has Swiss Polka. Yeah, that has Swiss Polka. And the Aladdin Carpets has music from Aladdin. Right. The Jungle Cruise is an interesting one because it's sort of set aside musically. Uh, because it's a ride that's set in the past, in the 30s, 40s, that's the music that we hear. Right. Piped, piped over the, the radio in the queue area. It's interesting you bring that up because for the Jingle Cruise, the holiday music was aping that sort of 30s, 40s sound. Yeah, 1930s, 1940s Christmas music was in the queue uh, last week when Jim and I were there. Oh, yeah. So they're still keeping it in the same period, but adding the, the holiday aspect to it as well. Uh, what about Pirates of the Caribbean? Yeah, so that's another very interesting one because it's a ride that, of course, famously has its own theme tune which has been used in subsequently in the films and in compilation albums and all over the place. If you listen carefully in the ride, you'll hear that same theme playing all the way through, the, the whole 15 minutes or however long it is. It doesn't always sound like it, though, because the musical arrangers are using very different arrangements of that tune to set the mood of the different scenes that you're in. What's an example of a different arrangement? So we all think of it in, in the upbeat version with, with the chorus and all the pirates singing. Sure. But when you first go into the spooky cave, you can hear it very slowly in, I think it's an alto flute, but it's the same tune. It just doesn't sound quite like it because it's so such a different arrangement. I'm not that familiar with musical terms. An arrangement is what? A different set of instruments playing the same thing in a different key different instruments or a different key or a different modality so going from major into minor or going from a, a full orchestra to a string quartet or a solo flute or you know, all sorts of different combinations or choir what kind of difference does it make on a song to play something in a major key versus a minor key i'm not familiar with what those what those things mean we usually think of major as being happy and minor as being sad it's an oversimplification but it it usually work, kind of works that way. So a major key is like do, mi, so, mi, do, but minor is do, me, so, me, do. So the lowering the third degree, scale degree has a almost a kind of negative effect on it. That is super interesting. Yeah, so usually like if you go to a movie, if there's a sad scene, it'll be accompanied by minor music. But if there's a happy, upbeat scene, it'll be accompanied by major music. We've learned so much on this episode already. <laughs> Here's two examples of Pirates of the Caribbean with two different arrangements. Here we go. Of evil curses, says you. <laughs> Properly warned, ye be, says I. Who knows when that evil curse will strike the greedy beholders of this bewitched treasure? When Disney wants to integrate in movie soundtracks into the background music of an existing area. Like when they wanted to bring in, I think it was Hans Zimmer that did the score for Pirates of the Caribbean, the movie, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think he was involved somehow, but it was a, by a collective of composers. When they want to bring something like that in, what are they looking for in terms of compatibility with the movie soundtrack and the background music? Like they can't just slap anything into the background music of the land 
Can they? How does that go typically? Well, often they'll use this thing called arrangement to make it fit. Ah, okay, okay. So in Pirates of the Caribbean, you do hear some of the music from the movie in the ship battle scene. Mm-hmm. The big main thum, ba-da-dum, 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 that theme uh, goes in. That was a fantastic soundtrack, I thought. I, like, I've listened to the soundtrack on its own, and I think it's generally very well done. Yeah, very effective. Okay, Jim wants to say something, but before he does, let me do Magic Kingdom Sunshine Pavilion Loop from 1971. Interesting little side note here. John Hench once talked about how fragile Disney theme park world actually is. We talked earlier about Main Street USA and doing the turn of the century music and that sort of thing, how it put you in the, the era and it put you in the right place. But all it would take to pull you out of that is to play a Britney Spears song. <laughs> you mentioned that, Jim. And I remember being in Adventureland when you're on New Year's Eve and they stopped the background music at 1 a.m. and started playing Justin Bieber. I'm not making this up. It, you're right. It's, it's, at that point, it just becomes an interesting sort of like movie set that you're on. Mm-hmm. The reason they put on that music at that time of night is that's when the staff is in there working. Okay. Yeah. I was just going to say on, on that interesting point, just taking a brief detour to Hollywood Studios, the music there is much more heterogeneous because that's kind of the point. The idea is that you've got all these different things going on in this imaginary studio. So there, there's a lot more variety in the music right? and in close contact with, with each other as well. On Sunset Boulevard, they're generally playing stuff from the 40s, right? Yeah. yeah. As you get close to the Tower of Terror, I know that includes like, you know, Deep Purple and a couple of other songs. Obviously, Rock and Roller Coaster is going to be Aerosmith stuff. The background music along the area by the ABC Commissary I believe those are compositions from the different ABC shows. Like, I know there's the soap theme and a few other things. Are you saying that there's areas in the park where all of those things come together? Well, I think it's just the space between the different types of music is much smaller. Ah, got it, got it. Also, it's worth noting that as you enter that park and march toward the Chinese theater, you tend to get a lot of classic film themes. This is sort of establishing the world. And so you can hear Gone with the Wind or songs from Casablanca, that sort of thing, just to sort of establish that this is big Hollywood themes. But then, as you mentioned, as you break into smaller areas that are keying off specific themes, whether it's 30s and 40s of Sunset Boulevard or Muppet Studios, where it's all instrumental versions of songs from the Muppet, you know, the various Muppet movies. Let's stay in the studios then for one minute. Gregory, when you're walking down Hollywood Boulevard towards the Chinese theater, the period that you're supposed to be in is uh, 1930s, 1940s Hollywood. Is the music consistent there with 30s and 40s Hollywood? Or to Jim's point, are they playing things like, you know, the Star Wars theme? Or Generally, it is pretty consistent, at least with the area music that's piped through, where it wouldn't be consistent as if there's a parade or okay. a special show or event. Then they'll turn down the area music and highlight whatever they're trying to demonstrate. He's right. If you think about the Star Wars weekends where you'd stand there and it just the whole front half of the park is basically playing various Star Wars music. Yeah. The thing I was trying to figure out was whether you could hear something like the Indiana Jones theme on a normal day as you're walking down Hollywood Boulevard, which would not make sense because... No, I don't think you would. Right. But Gun with the Wind would make sense because 1939 yeah. movie, 1940s park. Mm-hmm. Okay, that totally makes sense. Right, and here's an example of some uh, Frontierland background music. This is Red River Valley. 
let's switch back to the Magic Kingdom here and uh, let's go from Adventureland into Frontierland. Now here they're playing classics from the American frontier. So Red River Valley, Wabash Cannibal, things like Skip to Maloo, Swanee River, things like that. What's the purpose of this? Well, it's to put us into the frontier. Frontierland is, for me, one of the most interesting as someone who looks at American musical history because nowadays, because we're, we're so far away from that period and from that music, we kind of group some very different music together. So in Frontierland, everything is given similar arrangements, so it all sounds the same, but we've got music from the West with cowboys, and we've got music from the South, and we've got music from Appalachia. You know, it, it's all from all over the place. So something like Swanee River is from a very different cultural background, cultural history, than something like Goodbye Old Paint or, or one of the old cowboy songs. But they're all sort of brought together in Frontierland. And you're saying that they're blending that together using the same arrangement or similar arrangements? Yeah. So lots of uh, guitar, banjo, that kind of stuff. Okay. And from different parts of the United States and how they're integrated, here are two different songs. One is the Wabash Cannonball, and the other one is Skip to Maloo. Wabash Cannonball is from Illinois. Skip to Maloo is from Kentucky, but they both sound the same because of the arrangements. Let's listen, give a listen to first Wabash Cannonball and then uh, Skip to Maloo. What are they trying to do with the individual attractions? Like, is there a difference in background music between Splash Mountain and Big Thunder Mountain? Yes. So, Big Thunder Mountain being more sort of the Wild West idea and the runaway mine train, Mm -hmm. you'll hear more bluegrass style of music. And I think they've chosen bluegrass because of the speed that it happens at. So it accompanies very nicely the the fast roller coaster. Oh. Uh, and Splash Mountain is using music from Song of the South, from the film that, that it's based on. Right. What about places like Tom Sawyer Island? What sort of a musical accompaniment do they have there? Oh, I haven't been to Tom Sawyer Island in a long time. I can't even remember. Uh, Aaron, let's play a little something to jog Gregory's memory here from Tom Sawyer Island. They're sort of still going for the same Western Americana, 19th century kind of frontier thing there. Let's transition then to Hall of Presidents. There's a hail to the chief in there somewhere. What are they trying to do in Liberty Square? Liberty Square, they're really going for the the sort of Aaron Copeland-esque style of American music. I don't know if you're familiar with Aaron Copeland, but what? if you know... The, well, hold on! That's a, dude, that's an insult. <laughs> My favorite American composer, I think Fanfare for the Common Man, is one of the classic pieces of American music. I think Appalachian Spring is, is just okay. Yeah, I know that that's heresy, but I like the stuff that he did around Abraham Lincoln a little bit better. So here in the lobby, you're, list, you're hearing things like Battle Cry of Freedom and Kingdom Coming Quick, calls for fife and drum, things like that. Here's a sample from Hall of Presidents. It's the lobby area music. It's called Calls for Fife and Drum.
when you transition from the streets out in Liberty Square into Hall of Presidents to sort of double back to Frontierland, you have a limited number of instruments that are used to create these pieces. But as you transition from Frontierland to Liberty Square, just the choices of instruments that are used, this is what would have been available to make music during the 1700s, so to speak, where at the 1800s, you piano, banjo, guitar, that sort of thing. Whereas once you step into the attraction proper, it becomes that much more majestic, that much more cinematic. Because again, you're, you're about to enter this polished, patriotic pageant. Yeah. It's going from a, a small ensemble, like you might have heard on the streets at the time, into a big orchestral ensemble, which you wouldn't have heard at the time, but which does give it that air of majesty. There you go. So Disney's actually keying the number of performers in the music to what you would see in that area. So you, we would see three people in Frontierland playing a tune. Yeah. It's going to sound like three people are playing it. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it's again the importance of arrangement and orchestration and instrumentation that a, a lot of people, even musicologists, don't talk about very much. But it has a huge effect whether you've got an ensemble of three players versus a full orchestra, even if the music is the same. But the idea that Disney considered the fact that you would only hear three or four people on a street versus going into uh, the saloon where you would hear maybe a a larger band. I mean, that's an incredible level of detail that I don't think, I mean, certainly I hadn't considered that before and I've I've spent some time in Disney theme parks. That's amazing. Yeah, well, it just goes to show how clever these Imagineers are at setting the sound, the, the soundscape as well as the visual. Let's go back to the Liberty Square again real quick. So if I'm looking at the soundtrack for Hall of Presidents, there are songs like Buchanan Polka or Jefferson and Liberty or... President James K. Polk's Grand Marching Quick Step. Are those real songs? Or is this stuff that Disney made up? Some of them are, probably most of them. They do occasionally do what I might call fake song, music that is meant to sound like folk song, but it's not real. The most famous example of that is the Ballad of Davy Crockett, which a lot of people think of as as a folk song itself, but was actually written for the 50s TV show. Really? I didn't know that. I thought that was... Uh... Yeah. By the way, my favorite arrangement of that particular song is at the Country Bear Jamboree. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, so for things like Hall of Presidents, somebody went and dug up songs that were written for individual presidents and put in the background music? I would need to check to be sure, but yeah, I think so. By the way, uh, as an aside here, do you actually have a, a collection of Disney background music? Not per se, but I know where to find it if I need it. Okay. I might send you a flash drive. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. All right, Jimmy, you're going to say something? you got to remember that Hall of Presidents, or the original version of the name of the show, One Nation Under God, I mean, that thing was in the works as early as 57? And Walt was all about trying to make this stuff as authentic as possible. So some poor Imagineer was going through old campaign songs, which... Given the 50s, they were dealing with I Like Ike, the march that was created for that election. Yeah. I mean, this stuff dates back centuries, Len. They, you know, there's a lot of stuff they could have pulled from. Yeah. I'm just amazed that somebody actually did that kind of research, that we're all just not getting Battle Home of the Republic or something like that over and over again. I had never considered the background music at these minor attractions to that level of detail. That's kind of amazing. Yeah, th- this stuff isn't that hard to find if you know where to look. That's what archivists do, what musicologists do. In fact, I'll bet that I think the Library of Congress has, as, as part of their website, a whole thing on campaign music. Oh, fantastic. But the idea that pre-internet, Disney had to go research this stuff 
you know, back in the 70s and 80s when they were building this thing, mm-hmm. that kind of effort into something that we recognize but don't necessarily appreciate. I think that's pretty interesting. Well, the, the thing about these Disney attractions and spaces is that they cater to everybody. The music serves as background that you don't really notice for some people, but other people like me will listen to it and, and appreciate what's gone into it. Sort of like the way that I look at the, the bus schedules. Like, wow, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty impressive. Sorry for that. Yeah. Let's go to, uh, let's go to Haunted yeah, Mansion. Yeah. And Haunted Mansion, I think Jim has alluded to, it's really two different rides sort of stuck together. The beginning of it is scary. The end of it is played for laughs. How does Disney approach those two different goals musically it's through this musical arrangement thing again because like pirates of the caribbean it is the same basic material musical material that goes through the whole ride it's just at the beginning it's played very slowly and on an organ but then when you get into the graveyard scene it's played with the pop band type instruments and the singers quite quite a lot quicker but it is the same tune hmm. it's uh, consistently the same tune throughout the entire yeah, throughout the whole ride. It's it's almost like a theme and variations kind of thing. Like I know in, in some parts of it they're playing a, they're using flutes, in some part they're using trumpets. I think there's bagpipes in there somewhere. What's what's all of that happening? Uh well they're they're matching the animatronics because there is a trumpet playing ghost and there's a bagpipes ghost and there's a flute playing ghost. So they're creating a sense of realism that these are actually the the instruments that are being played. Oh, got it. Okay. And are they playing the same yeah. tune? Yeah. Grim, yeah, still Grim Grinning Ghosts. They're playing the... Uh, okay. Ha. Huh. Yeah. Here's two examples from Haunted Mansion. It's the same song, played uh, two different ways. Uh, first one is from the foyer to the organ alternative track. And then the second one is going to be the graveyard bass track. Let's skip out of Liberty Square. Let's go into Fantasyland, starting with the area around Peter Pan and It's a Small World. Peter Pan is probably playing stuff from the movie, right? That's right. Yeah. They play anything else besides the movie stuff or is it just movie stuff? Not Peter Pan. It's just movie stuff. Mostly you can fly. I haven't stood in front of it for long enough to know how much they change it. But what I remember is you can fly also because it's one of my favorite songs. Yeah, it's a relatively short background loop. And I think it is actually you can fly over and over again. And it's a small world. They're playing. It's a small world. Yeah. As a musical scholar, what do you think of that song? It's very ingenious because if we were to do a, a structural analysis of this song, we would find that it, it has a sort of a chorus and verse structure, but the lengths of those two things are not the same. It's not quite symmetrical. So that means that it can never really end. <laughs> If it were if it were symmetrical, you could have an end with a final with a final cadence. But because it's not, because one section has to lead into another section, it can only fade out or go on forever. That goes a long way towards explaining a lot of things, man. That's that's why it's such an earworm. It's because the structure of the song doesn't allow it to finish with a with a strong final cadence. Wow. Wow. I understand now so much more about that song than I did. That's fantastic. We've been lucky enough to interview the Sherman Brothers a couple of times over the years, and 
that thing was just slapped together. I mean, you know, in fact, that was the placeholder song that they basically presented to Walt. This we're thinking along these lines. And in later years, Richard was like, if I were to revisit that song, you know, I would have gone slower that I think it's more powerful as with the slower temple and really is sort of a prayer for peace. And uh, this is the day that Coco has gone into theatrical release here in the States. And there's a song that Bobby Lopez and his wife, Christian Anderson Lopez, wrote that's sort of the main number of that show, Remember Me. And the intriguing thing is that they do it sort of borrowing from the Sherman Brothers. There's a big upbeat version of it that's supposedly the popular version of the song, but the really emotional, the last 15 minutes, you get a very different version of the song that really packs an emotional punch, but that's the stripped down, slower, only played on a single guitar version that really packs a wallop. And it just, for me, it's always fascinating to watch if you vary the tempo or the arrangement or the, the number of instruments used, one song can have many different impacts. Jim, do you think that the fact that the Sherman brothers had pitched It's a Small World to Walt as sort of a concept idea, you think that's why it doesn't have an end? It just goes on and on forever. We're just going to loop this thing back together? Well, you know, you have to remember the famous story about the original version of Small World was you floated past each of these little vignettes where they played the actual national anthem of each country, and it was, was god-awful. Yeah, so the original idea for the It's a Small World ride was as you went past each group of children, they would be singing their own national anthem. But you can imagine what it's like to hear 182 national anthems played. Mm-hmm. At the same time, yeah, that was that was not a good idea. And then factor in, remember, that this was a ride that got greenlit in the fall of 63, and it had to open in April? In 64, yeah. Yeah, that was the thing. It was just sort of like, no, get me something easy, get, you know, because we're, we're slapping this ride in right. as quickly as possible. And again, to the Sherman Brothers' credit, they, they're like, we love that it was as successful as it was, one of my other favorite stories about the Sherman brothers is they were driving back from Wed in Glendale with Walt back to the lot. And so they were saying to Walt, well, what would you think if we took our royalties from that song and donated it to UNICEF? And Walt jammed on the brakes and pulled over to the side of the road and sort of wheeled around to the two of them. And it's like, no, you're not giving that money away. Your grandkids will be using that to buy houses. You don't understand what you just wrote. Kids are going to be eating off this for years. Just leave it the way it is. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. All right, let's go a little bit deeper into Fantasyland. The area around Cinderella's Golden Carousel, to me, is basically the equivalent, I think, of a Broadway jukebox musical. There's like every song from every Disney movie ever made is represented there. You've got stuff from Alice in Wonderland. You've got Hakuna Matata from Lion King. You've got a bunch of stuff from Snow White. Here are a couple of examples from uh, Cinderella's Golden Carousel. First is Hakuna Matata. Second one is uh, Give a Little Whistle. Is basically this is where, this is where all the songs go that they don't know where to put somewhere else in Fantasyland. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could say that. 
I mean, it's it's that old carousel music thing where it's a grab bag of all kinds of stuff just to, to keep the kids entertained while they go around and around and around. Right. What's the sound that they're using? How, uh, I know they're using an arrangement here, but what's, what is about the arrangement that makes everything sound alike? Are they, they're using, is it like harpsichord? It's a calliope. A calliope, thank you. Okay. Well, it might be some electronic approximation of it, but that's the idea. It's a, it's a little organ that they did have in carousels and someone would play this organ and as the thing went around. The other areas that we have around Fantasyland, so obviously we've got the new Fantasyland, Fantasyland area with Beauty and the Beast. It's doing music from Beauty and the Beast. Ariel's Grotto and Under the Sea are doing, doing Ariel's as well. But what about the sort of the area between the carousel and Winnie the Pooh? What are they playing there? Um, what are they playing? That's a good question. One of the things that's fascinating to me is that you can create these limited zones of sound. I mean, for example, when you walk toward the Winnie the Pooh area, there's just enough sounds that are blowing out from the queue coupled with a couple of speakers that back up that thing. Mm -hmm. So you do get the Winnie the Pooh music, but the interesting thing is, as you continue down the hill, there's this sort of very sophisticated shift from the Sherman Brothers Winnie the Pooh music to suddenly here you are listening to the Jay Livingston that they wrote for Alice in Wonderland in the 50s. There's just enough of breathing space that they're not competing. You never get the sense of the tempos don't match up. Uh, that's honestly one of the more intriguing things about uh, Disney is the sophisticated use of not only music, but also a- acoustic design. You are in this space hearing that piece of music and you walk a few more feet and now you're hearing another piece of music that's compatible Mm-hmm. but not necessarily competitive. Yeah, they do that really well throughout, just where they put the speakers and which direction the speakers go in to make sure that it's giving you the best experience. Before we leave Fantasyland, I want to just double back real quick to uh, Cinderella Castle. If I recall correctly, there's a special background music loop just for the area of Cinderella Castle. And here's an example of the background music for Cinderella Castle. This is track is actually dates back to King Stephen's Banquet Hall, but that's the name of the track. Is it is it harpsichord? Is that what? Probably, yeah. Why? Well, harpsichord is an instrument that isn't made much anymore. And there are a few pieces written for it, but it has connotations with previous centuries because it, around 1800 or so, it started to be replaced by the piano okay. uh, in most music in most contexts. So it evokes a sense of the old world kind of thing. Okay. And also, I think it often has a, a connotation of nobility kind of upper class. Okay, that would make sense for Cinderella's royal table. Yeah. And also it's a chamber instrument, really. It's not a big orchestral instrument because it doesn't make a whole lot of sound. Ah. Um, So there's a sense of intimacy about it as well. That makes sense. Let's go to Tomorrowland and then we'll wrap up on that. I think Tomorrowland has, for me, one of the best sets of background music in the park. Uh, I'll tell you the story. One time I was training for half marathon and I decided it would be a good idea to listen to the Adventureland drums for 45 minutes. Gregory, let me tell you, it is not a good idea to listen to the Adventureland drums for 45 minutes because it's repetitious. <laughs> but there's a ton of stuff going on in Tomorrowland and yeah. some of it they pulled from existing artists' work, right? So things like Behind the Waterfall or Bubble Shuffle. Here is a sample from Behind the Waterfall. 
those are things that people did not produce for Disney that were not in Disney films, right? That they just, they pulled in? Yeah. What's the sound that they're going for in Tomorrowland? I mean, obviously peppy music, but differentiate that from sort of the music that you hear in other lands. So in Tomorrowland now, they're going for the 50s version of the future. So you'll hear a lot of 50s style futuristic music, by which I mean using tools that they use in the 50s to be sort of cutting edge avant-garde. So you'll hear things like the theremin, which is a early... Uh, you said the theremin, yeah. yeah it works on radio waves. Yeah, it's a thing where you like raise your hand above it and it's... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah so the, the Space Mountain has a particularly prominent theremin in, in its score. And you'll hear a lot of electronic music that sounds a little bit clunky. I mean, to someone who works in electronic music today, it'll sound a bit clunky, but it gives it a kind of 50s veneer, but also sounds futuristic. So they're playing with that. Do you have an example of that? Really, most of the arrangements that you hear in the area are scored for electronics. I can't think of any specific examples off the top of my head. But again, Space Mountain has a lot. Okay. Here is some very groovy Space Mountain Star Tunnel music. In fact, it's called Star Tunnel. In 96, when this new version of Tomorrowland debuted at Walt Disney World, I can tell you from my friend Paul Oster how to actually worked on this. It's, it's the future that never was, but is finally here. So it was the, the theremin, that sort of thing, yeah. what people expected for sci-fi. But at the same time, because it was a Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon sort of taking the future as well, that there was 30s instrumentation and all of this music had to be written and arranged for that space. And at the same time, addressing that different buildings would have different arrangements of the different pieces because they represented different parts of that communities. One of the albums that they use, I think in the Space Mountain soundtrack is by a guy named Esquivel. Is that my, am I pronouncing his name right? I'm not sure. But anyway, the, the name of the album that they're uh, pulling it from is Space Age Bachelor Pad Music, recorded 1957, uh, 1958. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's got to be it, right? Yeah. In the late 50s, there was a short-lived musical genre that I, I think they called it Space Age or something like that, that was that style. And it was for you know, your swinging bachelor pad. That's what you what you play in your bachelor pad. <laughs> to show that you're sort of futuristic and really cool. What else are they trying to do in Tomorrowland as you're walking through it? Like Curacao of Progress, what are they doing there? They've got Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow, but what else are they doing in terms of background music? That's another example of very careful arrangement work. Because even though it's the same song, in each of the iterations of the family, it's a different arrangement that evokes the period. So it's an, a mark of uh, more good good writing from the Sherman Brothers that the same song works in so many different forms. So it's turn of the century, it's 20s, 40s, and current, uh, or you know, 1980s, let's face it. Yeah, so it, it's given a, an early swing arrangement in the 20s, like a Charleston kind of thing, and, you know, 40s swing. Mm-hmm. It's, again, careful use of the instruments that are accompanying it, and also the style of singing that you hear the chorus sing as the theater moves around. The one deviation from this, the very careful set per period, each area having its own you know, arrangements and music choices, and that's the, the one time Disney deviates from this, and, and particularly in Anaheim, you'll get this, though, same thing in Orlando, during the day, during the holidays, 
there's a mix of music that they play in the Main Street area that is actually classic holiday music from the 50s or thereabouts. And what's kind of interesting is it was Jack Wagner, the announcer of Disneyland, who was very into sound design. I mean, Jack is the guy who, when they were trying to figure out how to do the Main Street Electrical Parade, said, hang on, I've heard this piece. God, I'm blanking the name of the... Baroque down that, that, you know, this is the piece we should use. So when it came time to put together a holiday mix, Jack went to his own collection of holiday albums and said, this track, this track, this track, this track, and created this amazing, wonderful holiday soundscape for Main Street that a lot of Disneyland fans this time of year will actually post a list of the individual tracks that if you want to try to build that same recording, if you can't get a hold of, of Disney's holiday music, they tell you which albums to go to grab the, the individual tracks. But yeah, that, that's the one time where they sort of step away that one time of year from the carefully designed period-specific music, but again, only for that one section of that part. But it's still evoking this, a similar sense of nostalgia by using your recording. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah. So even yep. though it's not turn-of-the-century nostalgia, it's still the American past. Yeah that is being evoked. Very much so. All right, let's wrap up our day on Main Street. We said at the beginning of the day, when you're walking into the park for the first time, they're playing peppy marching music. But when you're walking out of down Main Street at night, as you're leaving the park, they're doing something different, right, Gregory? Yeah, they're shifting to slower tempos. I always think of When You Wish Upon a Star as being played at the end, which you wouldn't play that at the, at the beginning, right? because the stars aren't out yet, for one thing. But it's a slower tune. It's using more strings rather than like a brass band and, and marching stuff. So it's getting you in the mood to go home and, and go to sleep. Here's a sample of that track for everyone to remember. But more to the point, it's slowing you down so you'll actually go into a shop and maybe air out your wallet. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true as well. It's, it's a happy coincidence, Jim. It's not what they were going for. There we go. It makes you feel kind of wistful, that song especially. And it makes you want to linger and, and take it all in before you have to leave. And going shopping is a good way to, to do that. <laughs> Gregory, you've got to use your uh, powers here for good, not evil. Always remember that. <laughs> Well, this has been a great walk through the uh, the park. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, it's been great. I've learned a lot too. Once again, thanks to uh, Dr. Gregory Camp of the University of Auckland for coming on and talking about Walt Disney World music. If you folks enjoyed this, we will definitely have him back on to talk about other pieces of music. Uh, Dr. Camp, where can uh, people reach you if they want to talk more about Disney music? You have social media, you've got email. Yeah, um, they can, probably easiest to find me on our university website. Just uh, look me up, Gregory Camp, that's C-A-M-P, University of Auckland, and it'll come up on Google, and there will find the links to my university profile and email and all of that stuff. I can post a link on the show notes as well. Yeah. All right, folks, you've been listening to the Disney Dish podcast with Jim Hill and our special guest, Dr. Gregory Camp. Please go on to iTunes and Stitcher, your nearest firehouse wall, and write a review of our show and tell us what you would like to hear next. Don't forget, we are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.
Never been caught or never been free.